Heavenly Father, we thank You. We praise You for Your Word. You are a great and an awesome God. And Lord, this morning, as we look at the, the difference between the traditions of men and what it truly means to be saved, Lord, I just pray, Father, that the power of Your Holy Spirit would just fall upon this place and open our eyes and open our hearts, Father God, to receive from You. To have true discernment as to what the difference is between just following a religion and truly having a relationship with the Creator of the universe. So, Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you would be our teacher, that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. The title, the title for today's message is, True Salvation or Man-Made Tradition. You know, a lot of people today, and it's incredibly sad, to see so many trusting in religious affiliation, vain rituals for their salvation and right standing before God. Millions around the world have, have bought into Satan's lie that their heritage, their birthright, their good works, or their religious zeal will somehow earn them favor before God. And in this indebtedness to their earthly accomplishments, God will somehow owe them heaven. You know, these guys, that the, the Al-Qaeda, these guys who crashed the planes into the World Trade Center, they believed that this act of, of suicide was a religious mission, and they believed that somehow if they you know, killed this great Satan in the United States, that God somehow would owe them something, and they were going to inherit this, this heaven with 70 virgins and all these mansions. And you know what an ultimate lie, that people would have this great zeal, but zeal for a lie. And just as, as pronounced as that is, there are many others who have a zeal for lies just as heinous. And it's sad that millions of people have fallen into that trap. You know, and I, I, if most of you know me for more than a week know that I don't believe that we should water down the gospel. And I don't believe that we should, you know, try to placate lies. Because the reality is that there are people that so desperately need to hear the truth of God's Word. You know, the cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, people like that, they believe that there is another path to heaven. They believe that their good works will somehow earn salvation. They believe it's Jesus Christ and something else that will bring them into heaven. When we all know it's Jesus Christ alone. Only through Him can we be saved. It's also sad to see denominations out there that are based on works. That somehow we must do something good to earn God's favor. We must be confirmed and we must have all these other rites and rituals to somehow earn God's favor. Then you have those who worship the false gods. Who believe that their zeal for this false god will somehow give them a ticket to heaven. God desires we not works based on... on the, the zeal of men, but a Holy Spirit-based relationship with those He's adopted into His family. Because of His Son's redemptive work on the cross, not man's religious work on earth. You know, we so often think again that we must do something for God to love us. And as we'll see clearly this morning, salvation is not a result of our good works. It's not because of your church membership. It's not because of vain religious tradition or popularity before men. Salvation is assured to, not assured to us because we're Americans. I've had people tell me, oh, I'm a Christian because I live in a Christian nation. Well, I was born in America, right? It's a Christian nation. That makes me a Christian. It's not so. It's not because we do good things for God or do good things for people. It's not because we go to church or even because we read the Bible or even because we refer to ourselves as Christians. While many of those things are very good and they're fruits of someone who's given their life to Christ, in and of themselves, it's not enough to make us Christians. It's not what we say that we are. It's not the works that we do. Today we'll see men who missed heaven because they trusted in their religious heritage, they trusted in religious tradition, and they trusted in right standing before men. 
We'll also witness these religious men attempt to, they're going to question Jesus about salvation. They're going to ask Jesus about salvation. They're not going to ask Him really seeking to know the answer, but they're going to come accusing our Lord about salvation. We're going to see them try to intimidate Jesus with the fear of men. Isn't that comical? Trying to intimidate the Creator of the universe, but yet they're going to try to do that. And then lastly, we will see them try to entrap Jesus with religious tradition. And we're going to see how our Lord handles all of that. So we're going to pick up in verse 22 of chapter 13 and begin by watching as they question Jesus about who can be saved. Who can be saved? Verse 22 is talking about Jesus. And He went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. As we know, this is getting toward the end of Jesus' ministry. And he's journeying toward Jerusalem. When he later comes to Jerusalem, that is the place where he will be crucified. And as he's headed there to Jerusalem, on the way to that, uh, that appointment with destiny, that divine appointment, on the way, he's being used by the Father to minister to those that he comes into contact with. Now, Jesus' ultimate destination is Jerusalem. But as along the way, he looked at those around him and his heart was broken for him. And he ministered to people in big cities and he ministered to people in villages. Now, this is where a lot of people like to point out that Jesus was homeless. And you know, the reality is that that is true, that the Bible says that, the, our, that our Savior had no place to lay his head. But I want to make it really clear that Jesus was not homeless because he was lazy. And he was not homeless because he was in rebellion against the world. Jesus was homeless because He was doing the will of the Father. Amen? He was about His Father's work. Everywhere He went was a mission field, and He had a burden for the lost. May we learn from Jesus' example that wherever we go, by the providence of God, wherever He leads us, that we are there to reveal the love of God to a lost and a dying world. You know, it's interesting. It says in Revelation chapter 3, verse verse 20, and, and we'll look at this, that the Lord desires to have that intimate relationship with all of mankind. And we'll get to that verse in a moment, but I want to take a look at verse 23. Look what it says there. The one said to him, Lord, there are few saved. And he said to them, are there few saved? Are there few who are saved? Lord, are there just going to be a few that are saved? Now you look at that question and you think he might be asking them from a, a real desire to know the answer. But the reality is that this is a Jewish man asking the question, and the Jews believed and taught that all of Israel would have heaven before them. They believed that it would happen here on earth. They believed the Messiah would come back, they would rule and reign. And they're saying, are there only a few that will be saved? And this is asked from a point of arrogance. Are are we the only ones? Are we the only ones that are going to be saved? Is there anybody else besides us? Are all the Jews going to be saved or only a few of us? Are, are any of the Samaritans or any of the Gentiles, Lord, is there only a few that will be saved? And the Lord is going to do what He often does. He doesn't respond to this man's hypothetical theological question. Instead, He's going to d- address the man directly. You know, quite often people come and they ask Jesus these flowery questions, and He cuts straight to the quick. He cuts straight to their heart. And He asks them a direct question about themselves. And I want to do that very same thing this morning. Are there only a few who will be saved? The Jews often ask this question, who will be saved? Many Jewish leaders again taught that only they would be saved, that the Jews would automatically go to heaven because of their heritage. My dad and I were just talking the other day about a story of a a woman who who died many years ago, about 20 some odd years ago. 
but her daughter married my brother, my older brother. And when she was about to die, she had gotten saved at a Bible study my dad taught, but she had grown up in the Catholic Church. And my dad was teaching a Bible study at a Catholic Church, and this woman came to know the Lord. And not long before she died, she wanted to be assured of her salvation, and she said to my dad, I want to know for sure that I've been born again. And my dad talked to her about being born again and said, you've, you've given your life to Christ, you've been born again, you're going to heaven. Well, then some days later, the priest came in to you know, give the last rites and to pray with her. And she said to her again, I, I want to be sure that I've been born again. I want to know for sure that I'm going to heaven. And he said to her, oh, you don't need to be born again, you're a good Catholic. You know, the reality is there's a lot of traditions out there that say, if you're a, a good you know, this, or a good Baptist, or a good whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm not picking on anybody. You know what? The reality is that it's not because we go to Calvary Chapel that saves us. It's not because we're a Baptist, or a Lutheran, or a Presbyterian, or a Methodist. It's a right relationship with Jesus Christ alone that can save us. And the sad part is that people will say, well, because of the tradition, because of the heritage, because you grew up in this church, because you were baptized as a baby, you're going to heaven. But we cannot trust in the traditions of men, but we must have an intimate personal relationship with the Creator of the universe. There's so many problems with what this man said. You're a good Catholic. You know, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Amen? There is no one who is good. No one. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Catholic or any church cannot save you. The Bible says Jesus said, now this is just Jesus, I guess His words aren't too important. He said, you must be born again. Amen? Nicodemus, the most religious man of the day, came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He didn't say, go be a good Jew. He didn't say, go to, go to temple and be a good attender and tithe. He said, you must be born again. We cannot trust in traditions of men. We must have an intimate, true relationship with the Creator of the universe. So these Jewish beliefs were that they were all going. Would Jesus dare contradict these beliefs? Look at verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus responds again to this man's general question about salvation by addressing him personally. What does he say there? Seek to enter by the narrow gate. I say to you. The man's asking this general question about salvation. He's asking this general question about who's going to heaven. How many people are going to heaven? What about those people? What about these people? And Jesus says, what about you? You know, a lot of times we hear that. I'll be witnessing to somebody and they'll say to me, well, what about the pygmies in Africa? What about the, what about the, people, the lost tribes in New Guinea? What about the people that are you know, way out there? Who, how are they going to be saved? And you know, my response is always, you know, God is a righteous God. But here's the reality. What about you? What have you done with Jesus Christ? Instead of looking out and focusing on somebody else, look at your own heart. What have you done? And you know what? If you've got a burden for the pygmies, why don't you get saved? And then we'll send you out there as a missionary. Amen? I mean, so often we want to look out and point and figure out, what what about those people? We need to examine our own hearts. Quit making excuses. Quit looking around. Look and examine ourselves. And this is what the Lord does. He points right to the man. He didn't address the question, but He addressed the questioner. And again, this is where where Revelation 3.20 comes in. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. 
You know what? The Lord is right there knocking on the door of every man's heart. But narrow is the gate and narrow is the response and few will accept it. Why? Because they will not answer God's call. They will not respond to the Lord reaching out to each one of them. Notice this here. You shall strive to enter through the narrow gate. For, and you know, it says in, Re- in Matthew seven thirteen and 14, let me read it to you, don't turn there, but let me just read it to you. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus didn't, again, address this man's broad theological question, but he pointed directly to him. Jesus had a way of turning the hypothetical into the personal. Again, didn't talk about these things that don't exist. Well, if God, have you ever had these questions? If God can create anything and God can do anything, can He create a rock so big that He can't pick it up? Everybody asks you those kind of questions, right? You know what? What about you and Jesus? Where are you at with the cross of Christ? Where are you at with the creator of the universe? People want to get off on these tangents and they want to water down the truth and they don't want to address the real issue. And here the Lord is addressing the issue with this man's heart. Again, turning the hypothetical into the personal. We should do the same. What about you? Where are you at with the Lord? How, how, are, how have you done in your decision with God? It says, not how many others is not the question we should be asking. Not how many others will be saved, but what must I do to be saved? What must I do to become a Christian? What must I do to accept what He's done for me on the cross? What must I do to enter into a personal, intimate relationship with the Creator of the universe? What must I do? And that should be the question that all of us have. What about us? What must we do? Why will the majority fail to enter? Why won't they enter in? Why is it only few are going to heaven? Because God is a no-fun bummer God and He doesn't want a lot of people to come. The reality is, the Bible says, His desire that none should perish, no, not one, but most will. Why? Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside the door and knock, saying, Lord, open it to us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you or where you are from. Again, the Lord reaches out to mankind. He gives opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to have an intimate relationship with Him. But most people are going to respond too late. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? So everybody's going to bow. It's just a matter of when. But most will respond too late. The Lord will come and make opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for each one of these people to come to know Him. He will reveal Himself to them. He will bring people into their life to share the truth. He's given us God's Word. And yet still most people will reject Him over and over again and over and over. And it is so very sad. Philippians 2 says this, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So while the Lord knocks on the door of every man's heart, most will not respond until it's too late. You know, the example I thought of from the Old Testament that gives us a clear picture of this is Noah. Those of you who have been on Wednesday nights, we're teaching verse by verse through the Old Testament. And just a few months ago, we looked at Noah. Maybe it's been a year ago. But we looked at Noah. Now here's the thing about Noah. Noah spent 120 years building a boat when it had never rained before. 
Now you can imagine the ridicule of all the people, of all of mankind. And what is Noah doing for 120 years? He's being obedient to the Father and building the ark. And at the same time, he's witnessing to mankind about the judgment that is coming. And we know that the people's response was, you're an idiot. Noah, you're all wet. Noah, you're a knucklehead. You're building a what? What's a boat? Never heard of that. Rain? Water's going to fall from the sky? Yeah, right. And so for 120 years, Noah is obedient. And people rejected the word. But do you know that in the end, that the ark was shut? And who shut the door of the ark? God did. Noah and his family got into the ark. God shut the door of the ark. And then it began to rain just as Noah said that it would. And this is unlike any other rain that's ever happened. Can you imagine all those people that had heard about the rain that didn't believe? I imagine that many people ran to the ark. I imagine that many people were standing outside the door, pounding on the door, but it was too late. They had missed 120 years worth of opportunity to, to be saved. Noah's family was sealed in the ark. They'd been saved. They'd been redeemed. But the people were outside pounding on the door, facing judgment. Why? Because they didn't believe the Word. Because they waited too long. Because they rejected it. Verse 26. When you begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But I will say to you, I tell you, I do not know you, where you were from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Another reason they waited so long was they had a false sense of security. Jesus had been among them. They had eaten with Him. And while they had been near Jesus, they never trusted Him as Savior. God gave the nation of Israel many privileges, many opportunities, and they did not respond. God is long-suffering, but God will not suffer forever. At some point, judgment will come. God is a gracious God and a merciful God. Again, it's His desire that none should perish, no, not one. But there will come a point when judgment will come. And we see here that, that a false sense of security. You know, the Bible says it is appointed for a man once to live, and then to die, and then the judgment. And they have this false sense that, well, I'm a Jew, so I'm okay. Now, not only that, Jesus is here, and, you know, we, we walked with you, and we, we talked with you, and we hung out with you, and you might be sitting here this morning and say, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I've been going to church my whole life. You know, I've always, I had my first Bible given to me when I was a little kid. And, you know, I went to Sunday school and, you know, and I prayed before and I've done all these things. But the reality is that it doesn't matter all these other things that you've done if you've never confessed that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. If you've never invited Jesus Christ to come and rule and reign and take the throne of your life. If you've never asked Him... And said, Lord, I, I, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I need to die to myself, Lord. Fill me with your Spirit. Forgive me for my sin. I believe that you're God. I believe that you died. I believe that you rose from the dead. If we're trusting in anything else to make us Christians, we've missed it. If we're trusting in church, if we're trusting in traditions, if we're trusting in heritage, it's not going to be good enough. And see, these Jews, that's what happened. They trusted in the fact, well, you know, we walked around with you, Lord, and, you know, we ate with you. We sat down at a table and had dinner with you, Lord. I mean, surely we belong to you. And look what he said to them at the end of verse 27. I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you are from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. You sinners. That's what he's calling them. They thought of themselves as doers of righteousness, but without Jesus' redemptive work on the cross, they were still sinners. These guys thought they were holy and righteous. Hey, we live in the synagogue. 
We, you know, we wear the robes. We pray the prayers on the street corner. We're the most religious people around. What do you mean we can't, we're not entering in? We, we know you. And he says, you workers of iniquity. You know what? Every one of us is a worker of iniquity. Amen? Every one of us in this room is a sinner. And our good works will not take away our sin. We sang it today. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? There's nothing else that can redeem us. There's nothing else that can save us. And these guys missed God and they waited too long. Why? Because they were trusting in their religion. They were trusting in their traditions instead of having a personal relationship with Almighty God. It takes more than reverence for tradition to enter into God's kingdom. Look at verse 28. Look what's coming for those who reject Him. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. How heavy this must have pierced the heart of this man who asked the question. This religious man to hear, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You're not going to inherit the earth. You're not going to be ruling and reigning. You're going to be weeping. You're going to be mourning. You're going to be in a place of torment. Why? Because you've trusted in religion. Because you've trusted in tradition instead of trusting in God. You've never made a public confession. You've never denied yourself. You've never sought after God. You've never confessed your sin. But instead, you've gone along the way with all the man-made traditions. And you've followed those instead of following God. There's only one way. Thrust out of the kingdom of God, inhabited by their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does this tell us? It tells us that God has no grandchildren. Amen? You're not saved because your parents are saved. I've had people tell me, well, I'm going to heaven. My great-grandfather was a missionary. And that's wonderful that your great-grandfather was a missionary, but that's not going to get you into heaven. Amen? Why? Because you're still a worker of iniquity. You are still a sinner. And you still need to be born again. As Jesus said, you must be born again. So we're not going to get in because of the good works of our family. We're not going to get in because of our association with, with godly people. We can't slide in because of somebody else. You know, it, it blessed me this week. My, my son, he's not in here, so I can embarrass him. My 11-year-old son went to camp this week, junior high camp. And I was blessed because I, call, I told my wife when he gets home, I was studying at the church last night, I said, I want to talk to him. I haven't talked to him in a week. And I said, I want to talk to Johnny and just hear about camp. I've been praying for him all week. I want to hear what God's done. So he gets on the phone, and before he even says hi, he says, Dad, Dad, it was awesome. You know, I went and I rededicated my life to the Lord, and I went forward and I prayed to ask to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I said, oh, son, that's, that's awesome. And he said, you know, Dad, you baptized me when I was six, but, you know, after I rededicated my life to the Lord, I'm not so sure I really understood what it meant. So I got baptized again too, Dad. It was awesome. You know what? God has no grandchildren. And I praise the Lord that, Dad, I'm glad I wasn't even there. He didn't do it for dad. He didn't do it for mom. He did it because God had called his life. Amen? God, and each one of us, we can't trust in our parents' faith. And the Bible says, I know no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. And there's nothing that blesses me more than to see our children of this church on fire for God. Amen? Nothing blesses me more to see them fall in love with the Lord. But these men base their faith on, well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're their children, so wherever they go, we're going to end up too. But just being related to them doesn't equate to salvation. 
Just because somebody in your family is a Christian or somebody was in the ministry or whatever, you can't base your salvation upon that. It must be accepted on an individual basis. Verse 29. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. You know what is interesting? He's telling the Jews, Gentiles will be saved. Samaritans will be saved. They'll be saved from the east to west, the north and the south. And they will be sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in heaven. And you will be thrust out. Why? Because you have trusted in religion. You have trusted in tradition. You have not trusted in me. You have not trusted in the Lord. You have not trusted in God. Too many people out there. Well, I'm a member of a church. So what? Man, Pastor Dave, that's heavy. The reality is that it's not... I'm not going to get to heaven and pull out my membership card. Amen? Oh, there it is. Yeah, a member. Good stamp. Pastor signed it. There it is. I got my baptism. I got my get-out-of-hell free card. I walked in on... And so often we think it's these rules and things we've done that somehow will equate to salvation. But the reality is that each one of us must be born again. We must be born from above. Amen? Must be born from above. So people are going to come from all over, but these Jews are going to miss salvation. Verse 30, Indeed, they are last who will be first, and they are first who will be last. The last and the first he's talking about here are the Jews and the Gentiles. Those who first received the Word will be last because they rejected it. But those who last received the Word will be first because they've accepted it. What have you done with God's Word? What have you done? Don't forget about everybody else in this room. By the way, and I've said this before, nobody else here is thinking about you right now. Amen? So no one's thinking about you or worrying about you. You're always on your mind, but no one else is thinking about you, right? But let me ask you a question. What have you done with the Lord? Not what have your parents done. Not how many times have you gone to church. But where are you at with Jesus Christ? Where is your relationship with Him? How are you doing? Are you in love with Him? Do you get up in the morning just singing praise songs and excited to know Him? Do you, do you ask Him to guide and lead and direct every path of your day? Do you ask Him, Lord, you know, Lord, what is Your will for my life? How can I follow You? How can I grow deeper in my relationship with You? How can I serve You, Lord? Is He your best friend? Is he, are you in love with Jesus? Or is the Christianity thing, you know, it's an hour on the week, it's just something I do, you know, I go to church because I always have it. Or, or, you know, is it on the side? Is it below your career and your family and other things? You know what? We need to be in love with the Lord. We don't want to be like these Jews who, behold, I've been standing at the door and knocking. Now it's too late and they're pounding on the wall of the ark. It's already, the, the ship has sailed. It's too late. My prayer would be that nobody in this room would miss out on salvation. Not one person. So we move on here from, from them questioning the Lord And now we're going to see just how blind, how spiritually blind they are as they try to intimidate God. Can you imagine trying to intimidate God? Is there anything that can intimidate God? The answer is no. Amen? He's the creator of the universe. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He can speak the word. He spoke the world into existence. I don't think he's too worried about the king being mad at him. But look at how they come against Christ. Look at the, the way that they respond to him. They don't repent at these words. When they hear there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, they don't repent and say, yes, you're right, we need to be born again. Instead, they threaten our Savior. Look at verse 30. 31, excuse me. On that very day, some of the Pharisees came to him saying, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. You better go, Jesus. Herod's coming. You better get out of here. He wants to kill you. Now, when you look at this in the, in the context, they're basically wanting to get Jesus out of there. They don't like his words. You know, why don't you just go away? 
And Herod wants to kill you. And remember, he's the one that beheaded John the Baptist. You ought to be shaking in your boots, Jesus, because Herod's coming. Now, you know what? A lot of times the world will do the same thing to us. They will try to threaten us because we're outspoken for the love of God. You know, you better stop talking about the Lord. You know, you, 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 know, you, you might lose your job if you keep talking about God like that. You know, people in the neighborhood aren't going to like you much. And, you know, you're going to have problems. if you, you know, so what? I mean, the reality is, let's have an eternal perspective, not a physical one. Look how Jesus responds to the threats of men. Oh, you're right. I'm going to leave right now. Come on. Come on, guys. Let's get out of here. Apostles, let's go. Come on. We better run quickly in the cover of night. We're worried. We're shaking in our boots. Aren't you glad our God's not shaking in His boots? Amen? Aren't you glad that He's victorious? He's afraid of nothing. Fear, anxiety, and worry are all the opposite of faith. And the Pharisees attempt to frighten the Lord by threatening Him. Again, instead of repenting, they try to intimidate Him. Look at verse 32. And He said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will be perfected. The word there for fox talks about cunning, but it also speaks of something that is of little or no value. Jesus said, go tell that guy that I'm busy about my father's business. I'm going to be casting out demons. I'm going to be touching people's lives. And on the third day, speaking of His resurrection, eventually I'm going to be in Jerusalem where I will be crucified. But it's going to happen according to the Father's time, not man's time. Amen? It's going to be according to the Father's will, not the will of men. What a great response that we should all have. People threaten us, say, you know what? God is in control. Amen? Isn't that true? Isn't it true that God's in control? Can't we rest in that? Instead of worrying about what men say, can't we just say, you know what? I'm indestructible until God is through with me. Amen? Nothing can happen to me in God, unless God allows it. Now, the Bible also says, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So that doesn't mean you go play on the freeway and say, I'm indestructible until God's through with me and run around the freeway. You don't do that. But we realize and trust that God, you know what, God, my life is in your hands. And until you call me home, I'm not going anywhere. Verse 33. Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. The word perish there again, Jesus points to His divine appointed death that would come in Jerusalem. And what a sad statement as He speaks to these Jews saying, a prophet cannot die outside of Jerusalem. Do you know that most of the Old Testament prophets were killed by the Jews, not the foreign enemy? Most of the Old Testament prophets were killed by their own people. And here Jesus is coming, and He's going to be crucified and put to death by His own people. But you and I both know that He had to die, that our sin would be paid for. Even though it looks like men are coming against God, it's all part of God's perfect plan. Look at the Lord's response to Jerusalem in verse 34. Look at His response to those who are not repenting of their sin. Look at His response when He comes to His own people. Look at verse 34. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the ones who killed the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate. As surely I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a great tenderness in the words of the Lord. His heart is broken over the rebellion of his people. The Bible, again, God takes no joy in any person being separated from Him. There's, God never has joy because somebody is separated from Him for eternity. It breaks God's heart 
that men reject Him. You know, I have to confess to you that in my flesh, there are certain people that are so vile that you just as soon see them get some judgment. How many of you have ever been guilty of that? Am I the only one? Like this guy who just kidnapped this little girl and then raped her and killed her and she was like five years old and he pulled her off her front porch. Isn't there a part, I mean, there's a part of me that says that guy, smoke that guy. You know what I mean? I mean, there's a part of you that says, you know, vengeance. But do you know that's sinful Dave and that's my heart. But God's heart is broken because he loves that man. God's heart is broken for the Jews because he loves them. He says, oh, Jerusalem. It causes him to weep because they've rejected the Lord. It causes, his heart is broken because men have turned away from him. He says, I wanted to gather your children together, but you were not willing. You know, God will not force himself on anybody. A lot of people out there are trying to say, well, if you're going to be saved, you have no, you know, it's just going to be forced on you. You're going to have to do it. That's not how it works. It is his desire that none should perish, no, not one. Salvation is offered universally, but it must be accepted individually. It can be held out to every one of us in this room, and it has been, but each one of us must reach out and accept salvation on an individual basis. Again, mom and dad can't take it for you. Going to church doesn't take it for you. There's nothing that you can do to accept salvation except confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Confess yourself as being a sinner. Not, you don't accept it by traditions of men, but you accept it by reaching out to Almighty God. Israel's house had been left desolate. There was no longer a king, there's no priest, there's no temple, there's no sacrifice. That's what's in Israel today. Is there a king of Israel? The answer is no. Is there a high priest in Israel? The answer is no. Are they making sacrifice in Israel? The answer is no. Is there a temple in Israel? The answer is no. It's been left desolate. But there is a day coming, and we saw a forerunning of it, a foretaste of it, when Jesus entered in. On Palm Sunday, and they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, there's a day coming, you see it in Zechariah chapter 10, when the Lord will return, and the Jews will finally say it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in the end, there will be many Jews who come to know God. But here it's a sad state of affairs. God's heart is broken. Why? Because the men, His chosen people, had turned their back on Him. They questioned Jesus about who can be saved. Then they attempt to intimidate Jesus and try to shoo Him from themselves. And then lastly here as we close in a few minutes, the Pharisees respond not with repentance but with retaliation. Instead of responding again, he cries out to him. His heart is broken. He's weeping and desiring to see men come unto himself. He's saying, I want to gather you under my wing as a hen does to her chicks. I want to protect you. I want to watch over you. I want to draw you into my bosom. And instead of responding to that, they reject him. And they seek to retaliate against our Lord. How are they going to do that? Look at chapter 14. They're going to try to trap Jesus. By the way, if you've ever tried to do this, not very successful. Amen? How many times have they tried to trap Jesus, and every single time what happens? It blows up in their face. They try to come up with some hypothetical question, and God comes along again and addresses each one of them individually. What about you? Look at verse 1, chapter 14. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. Now on the Sabbath day, hospitality was a big thing, kind of like our agape feast. It was an important part of Jewish life. They would invite people to their homes. And it was not unusual for Jesus to be invited to a home for a meal after the weekly synagogue service. Sometimes the host invited him because they really wanted to learn more about God, but other times... With these legalistic guys, they invited Jesus over so they could watch him closely and find a way to trap him or to accuse him of something. 
And that's exactly what is going on here. They invite Jesus over because they want to try to trap him. Now, how are they going to trap Jesus? You know, it's interesting that if you want to catch a certain kind of fish, you've got to use a certain kind of bait. And I used to tell the, the girls in the youth group all the time, you know, if you want to find out, you know, what kind of husband you catch will be based upon what you use for bait. Amen? You know, if you go around dressed all scantily clad and, you know, and you're, you're walking around, you know, being like that, you know what? You're going to catch a guy who's attracted to that. But if you're in love with God and you're a godly young woman, you're going to catch a godly young man. Amen? Quit trying to be, you know, look for the right person. Just be the right person. Amen? You be in love with the Lord and let God bring you a person who's attracted to that. And we see here that what kind of bait are they going to use to trap Jesus? What are they going to do? What is it that would entice the Lord? What would motivate God to do something? What would motivate Him to action? And you know what it is? It's a person who is hurting. They bring a man with dropsy, a man with a, an illness that has filled the tissues of his body with water. It's usually because of a kidney or a heart ailment or a liver problem. And this man is in great, excruciating pain. And they know Jesus well enough to know if we bring a man who's hurting and we put that man in front of Jesus, that Jesus will respond every single time. Doesn't it bless you to know that that's our God? Amen? Doesn't it bless you to know that it's the hurting people that grip His heart? That it's people that cause Him to respond. Not popularity, not prestige, not position before men, not to, to be the most elevated in the synagogue, but hurting people. Look at verse 2. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. So they bring this man in and they put him right in Jesus' path because they know when he comes in that if there's anybody in the room that's hurting, that's where the Lord's going to go. It won't take long and he's going to be right over by that person, ministering to him. You know what? If you're here this morning and you're hurting for any reason, you're going through a difficulty... I want you to know that the Lord loves you and He's looking to touch you. Amen? He wants to minister to you. He wants you to know that you're not alone. He wants to come alongside you and love you. And if you're here this morning and you don't know God and you've been trying to find the answer, He wants to reach out and transform your life this morning. Amen? He wants to make you a new creation in Christ. So they put this man with dropsy right before our Savior. Our Savior comes walking in. This afflicted man again. And you know what? This man would have never been invited to a Pharisee's home if Jesus wasn't there. They never would have invited this kind of a man. He was below them. He was hurting. They looked on, you know, the Bible says man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And man does look on the outward appearance. And these Pharisees were self-righteous. And they only associated with certain people, as we'll see next week. They tried to sit in the highest places. Because those who sit in the highest places have the highest status. And that's what they were most concerned about. So here they dragged this man in, and they only did it because they knew Jesus would be there. They would have never invited him for any other reason. And again, they knew Jesus would not be able to walk past this man. Now, their plans seemed to be foolproof. Here's why. If Jesus ignored the man, then the people would say, well, he has no compassion. All the people were there would say, the Lord has, Jesus has no compassion. But it's the Sabbath. And if he healed the man, they would say, oh, he's violated the religious traditions of the Sabbath. They thought no matter what he does, we've got him. 
So when Jesus walks in, let's just all stand over at the side, and whatever He does, we'll be ready to accuse Him. We'll be ready to pounce. We'll be ready to make accusation against the Creator of the universe. So they put the man in in Jesus' way, and Jesus comes walking in, and look what happens in verse 3. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, I love this because Jesus is answering a question that nobody asked, and I like that. Don't you love it when the Lord starts answering questions and nobody even asked them? Here here they have this question in their heart, and they're going to try to stumble the Lord, and He walks in and He sees the man with dropsy, and He sees the man who's hurting, and He wants to go put a healing touch upon him, and He sees the religious Pharisees, and He knows their hearts, and He turns and takes this hypothetical situation and turns it into a personal question once again. And He turns and says to them, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He looks right at the Pharisees who wanted to accuse Him, and He brings to them the accusation. And the reality is, the tables are turned quickly. Because now if they respond and say, well, no, it's not lawful, then they are people who are without compassion. Amen? But if they say, well, yes, it is lawful, then all the other Pharisees will think that they are lawless men. So the Lord has turned this trap and put it right back into their lap. He's put it right back on them and said, okay, guys, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, the interesting part about this is Jesus had already violated from their perspective, the Sabbath seven times. We know that He cast out a demon on the Sabbath. He healed a woman with a fever on the Sabbath. He allowed His disciples to pluck grain on the Sabbath. He healed a lame man on the Sabbath. He healed a man with a paralyzed hand. He delivered a crippled woman who was afflicted by a demon. And He healed a blind man. All those on the Sabbath. You know why? Because the Sabbath, man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath for the man. Amen? He's saying, look, the Sabbath isn't this rule and this bondage and this heavy yoke that's placed upon you. And we've talked about how from the Pharisees' point of view, there were so many rules on the Sabbath that everybody sat around petrified they were going to break it. Well, you can't put your false teeth in. They had wooden teeth back in those days. If you put your false teeth in on the Sabbath, that was considered carrying a weight. So you couldn't actually, well, take your teeth out. Sabbath. Oh, I can hardly wait for the Sabbath. That's great. If you've got a wooden leg, you've got to take your leg off. Why? Well, that because that, you know, that'd be carrying weight. So the guy's hopping around, no teeth, no leg. I mean, that's a great Sabbath. Looking forward to that day of rest, right? You couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath because water might spill out. If the water hit the floor, that would be washing, and that wouldn't equate to work. So you've got a bunch of people with no teeth, right? They can't eat. They smell bad because they can't bathe. That's a wonderful day of rest, isn't it? But the Pharisees had taken what God meant to be restful and turned it into a burden. And here they're trying to do the same thing. Can you imagine? Here this man is with dropsy. Who knows how long he's had this disease. He's in excruciating pain. Here comes the Messiah and they're saying, wait till Monday. Wait till the weekend's over. You know, beginning of the week. You you know, as soon as the sun goes down, then why don't you come back then? We don't have time for you right now. It's not official church hours. We can't touch you right now. And the Lord comes in, and He's never moved by tradition, but He's moved by His burden and His passion and His heart for people. You know, the only thing we're taking to heaven with us, you guys, is people. Amen? We're not taking these chairs, we're not taking the bookstore, we're not taking the church, we're not taking anything. We're taking people. Amen? And so often we would think that we're taking, you know, we're taking the the rules and the rituals and everything else, but all that's staying. None of that's going. It's people that we're taking with us. Amen? And that's where our focus needs to be. That's where our passion needs to be. 
Not the vain rituals of the self-righteous, but a burden and a passion for those who are lost and separated from the Lord. So he turns the table on them. Verse 4. But they kept silent. Isn't it interesting that how the Pharisees typically respond to the Lord? He calls them on it and then they go, oh, we can't say anything. There's, uh, we got nothing to say. What, what am I going to If we say that, no, then we're in trouble. If we say, no, then the Pharisees won't lie. We're done. We can't say anything. You know, God's Word leaves us speechless. Amen? And it ought to. And again, an opportunity to repent, but instead of repenting, they just remain self-righteous. They just remain in their same constant place of trusting in their religion, trusting in their heritage, instead of turning their lives over to God. The man with the dropsy was not evidence against Jesus breaking man-made traditions, but instead he became another testimony for Christ's healing touch. It says there, and he took him and healed him and let him go. Now it's also interesting to me that the Pharisees say you can't heal on the Sabbath, but do you know there's no record anywhere that I've ever seen in the Bible the Pharisees healing anybody? Well, yeah, I guess you can't heal on the Sabbath because you can't heal any time. Amen? Well, yeah, no healing on the Sabbath. Who have you healed? Nobody. Right? And here comes Jesus. He comes in. He's touching and transforming lives. And they're jealous and they're envious. Oh, man, we want that power. And instead of responding to it and saying, Lord, what must we do to be saved? They want to get Him out of there. You need to go. Herod's after you. And you can't be doing that. We've got to find accusation. We've got to retaliate against the Creator of the universe. We don't need to retaliate. We need to fall on our knees and cry out. You know what? The man of dropsy, his life became a testimony for the cause of Christ. As soon as he walked out that door, because he'd been touched by the Lord, everybody who saw him, he was a walking testimony. Amen? You know, when Lazarus was risen from the dead, you know, if you go to someone's funeral on Thursday and you see him at work on Monday, that would be a testimony. Amen? Oh, dude, I went to your funeral. What are you doing at work? Right? I saw you, man. And that's what happened with Lazarus. Everywhere he went, he was a walking testimony. Why? Because he once was dead and now he's alive. Let me ask you a question. Are you a walking testimony? We should be, amen? Because we used to be dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've been made alive in Christ, and everywhere we go, we ought to be a testimony to what the love of God can do in a sinful man or woman's heart. Amen? We should be a testimony. People say, what's different about you? And we should be able to say, it's Jesus. Amen? It's not my good works. It's not how hard I try. It's not my traditions. It's not my religion. It's not my church affiliation. It's not the get-out-of-hell-free card in my wallet. It's not my baptismal certificate. But it's Jesus. Amen? And to Him alone be the glory. To Him alone be the honor and the praise. Only He can change my life. Only He can do what has happened to me. Last two verses. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they did not answer him regarding these things. Once again, here are the Pharisees. Really bold until they get confronted with Jesus, right? Real bold in, in placing burdens on others, but when the Lord comes, how do they respond? Now this is pretty sad. And you know what? Santa Cruz can relate to verse 5. Because he said, Which of you, if your ox or your donkey fell in a in a ditch, wouldn't go get the donkey out of the ditch on the Sabbath. And they, they couldn't respond. Why? Because they'd all done it. But the sad part is that there are people today, and you know what? Let me just make it real clear. The Bible says a righteous man cares for his animal. 
So we should take care of the animals. That, if you have animals, we should care for them because that's what a righteous man does. It says that in Proverbs. A righteous man cares for his animal. But let me tell you this. Animals are not equal or greater to people. Amen? You know, you've heard the statement before, be a hero, save a whale, save a baby, go to jail, right? You know, people are passionate about saving whales by millions of babies are being slaughtered every single year in this country. Something's wrong. We've lost focus. He's saying to these people, you've elevated animals above men. You've missed it. Here's a man who's hurting, and you, you, you say, oh, you can't touch him on the Sabbath, but you can go dig your ox out of a ditch. The Lord says, no, 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 no. I came to restore man back to a holy God. Amen? Restore sinful man back to a holy God. Only a holy Savior can re- restore sinful man back to a holy God. And that's what Jesus came to do. And He came that we might have life and life more abundant. And only through Him can we be saved. And I just want to say it one last time. You know what? Don't trust in anything else for salvation. Don't make that mistake. Don't fall into that trap. Don't be like the Pharisees. They claimed to be defending God's Sabbath law when, in, in, when what they were really doing was denying God by the way they abused people and accused save, the Savior. There's a big difference between protecting God's truth and promoting man's traditions. Too many people are promoting the traditions of men. They come and knock on your door on Saturday morning. I'm here to talk to you about the good news. You're not here to talk to me about any good news, but you're talking to me about the traditions of men that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You deny that Jesus Christ is God. So that is not good news. Amen? It's a lie. If people come and knock on your door, you can be God of your own heaven, you know, have your own heaven one day and be God one day. That's the same thing that got Lucifer thrown out of heaven to begin with. Amen? That's not good news. It's a lie. And if we base our faith in, well, I go to church every week. I was born in a Christian nation. Won't do you any good. No, there's no checking a roll up in heaven. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad there isn't a big scale up in heaven with your name on it? Oh, Dave blew it again. Oh, I blew it again. Oh, I went to church. Right? And you're hoping by the, by the time it's over that it's more this way than this way. Oh, let's, te- let's check the scale. Oh, oh, you're out. Oh, that would be a bummer, right? And that's the way a lot of people live their life and think, if I just do enough good stuff, then God will owe me and He'll have to let me into heaven. You know what? Every other religion is a hope so. Every other person, you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, are you going to heaven? Well, they don't believe in heaven. They believe this is heaven. But they hope they're one of the 144,000. They're hoping. You ask a more, well, yeah, I sure hope so. You ask a, you know, anybody that's caught up in works-based religions and they hope that they're going. Let me tell you right now, that if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, it's not a hope so, it's a no so. Amen? Not because of who you are, how great you are, but about how great and how good our God is. Amen? And He promised us that we're going. And man, I love that. That's one promise I hold on to. So in summary, they questioned Jesus about who can be saved. They said, who can be saved? Jesus told them that most would respond too late. I pray that nobody in this room will be in that category. I pray that not one person here will respond too late. They attempted to intimidate Jesus by telling him that Herod was after him. And Jesus responded saying that nothing would happen until God's perfect timing. That God is in control, not man. They tried to entrap Jesus with the traditions of men. And Jesus responded to them by touching and transforming the life of a man according to the will of his Father. Instead of trying to keep this man-made, hypocritical ritual of the Sabbath according to the will of the Pharisees. 
Who are you living to please? Who do you live to honor? Who are you seeking to, to follow after with your whole heart? And then I want to close with this verse. The worship team will come up. We'll get ready for communion. What is your salvation based on? Is it based on the good works of men or His good work on the cross? Is it a hope so or is it a no so? It says in 1 John 5.13, if you, if, you if you have never underlined this verse, turn there and underline this. This is what it says. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. My last question for you today is, do you know that you have eternal life? You don't have to leave here without it. You don't have to walk out of here wondering or hoping anymore. You can know that you know that you know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You paid the price. We thank You, Lord, it's not our good works, but it's Your good work upon the cross that, that saves us. So, Father, I ask there's even one person here this morning that doesn't know You, that, Father God, they would not, they would not wait anymore. That they wouldn't wait for the perfect circumstance or the perfect reason, but, Father God, they would know today that they need to be born again, that they would see their need for You as Savior. Father, we just ask by the power of Your Holy Spirit that their heart would be softened, they would respond to Your Holy Spirit, not the words of men, but Your Holy Spirit right now. With every head bowed, it's going to take a brief moment. If there's anybody here and you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven, you can know. And all you have to do is, the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to the Lord, you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven, all I'm going to ask you to do is raise your hand. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Is there anybody here, even one person, with the Holy Spirit's drawing you. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. Nobody else is thinking about you. Is there anybody here that says, you know what, I want to know for sure that I'm going to heaven. Just raise your hand and I'll pray a simple prayer with you. Is there anybody? Anybody at all? We praise you, Lord, again. And we just thank you, Father God. We thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. We're going to take communion now. And the way we do it here at Calvary Chapel, let's go up.